Howdy. Howdy. How is everyone this morning? Hope you were glad to be here. Are you glad to be here this morning? Well, it's good to see you. So let's get to business. There is a crisis that U.S. men are facing as we speak this morning. I actually have a statistic. 98.6% of all U.S. men do not use instruction manuals that come with self-assembly products. Right? Amen? So this is a crisis. That's a made-up statistic, by the way. But if that actually was a statistic, I would be a part of that because I know as soon as the grill comes in in its box or there's the elliptical machine or whatever it is, it's like us men all have a mechanical engineering degree and we're going to go about trusting in ourselves building whatever is in that box, right? The instruction manual is probably from China anyhow, right? It was written in China. We don't need that anyways. And we go to work trusting in ourselves, I remember a couple years ago, whenever I had gone home to visit my folks, and my dad had invited me to replace a power window regulator in the family SUV. And it's a great idea by him, right, that we're going to have father-son bonding time, and he's going to teach me something practical with my hands that could perhaps help me in the future. So we go to work, and we're strategically placing the components to the side because we're going to have to put that door back together after we're finished And let me tell you this, I learned two solid lessons by the time that we were partway finished four and a half hours later. Number one, power window regulators are the most frustrating thing on planet Earth known to man. And number two, I learned some new language (laughs) that has absolutely nothing to do with power window regulators and their components. So you're probably wondering why I tell you this story this morning. Well, we're going to be looking at Jesus's words to those who trust in themselves that they are righteous before God. And if we're honest, we all have this impulse. We all have this within us that we feel like we have to measure up and make ourselves justified before God or mark ourselves right before God. There are some people who would explain their religious activity and they say, that's right. There's this proverbial scale of my life. And as long as the good outweighs the bad in my life, God and I are good. I'm right in his eyes. Yet there's some other well-intending Christians that have the knowledge that Christ alone justifies, but we live a different story at heart level because we don't believe it in our hearts. And if we don't believe it in our hearts, we're going to frantically live as if we have to justify ourselves before God. Some of the ways that we can go about justifying ourselves, it's all going to be unique to each per person, but that impulse is saying, hey, well, I have a verse in my Instagram bio. That has to count for something, right? Well, I go to church at least three Sundays out of the month, so my attendance at church looks pretty good, right? I'm a part of two Bible studies during the week. I'm raising godly children. I have read through the Bible, and I have all this knowledge. Ask me whatever, and I will answer it. So many ways that we feel like we justify ourselves. But just take a moment and think with me. What if we are focusing on the wrong pronouns whenever we're talking about I do this, I have this, I know this, I do blank, and we're using ourselves as the main focus of this subject whenever God is the main subject of the sentence. It should be he, it should be him. Those should be the pronouns we should be using as we trust and rely 
that it's he who justifies, that it's Christ alone who justifies. So before I preach my sermon, before I preach my sermon, let's look at the text here in a second. We're going to be looking at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And just some background information for us this morning. Whenever Jewish people would have heard this parable, they would have thought this teaching of Jesus was inconceivable, right? That there, we're going to learn the two characters here in a second, but there's this Pharisee over here who is self-described, is justified, is right with God, is religious, and all the people look up to him as such. Yet this is the man who is not right with God. And on the other hand, we're going to see this tax collector over here, self-described as sinful. And everybody thinks so as well. He's like, yeah, he's cheating me out of my money. He is a sinner. Yet this is the man who goes down to his house, justified, right in the eyes of God. This is the tension that we feel this morning as we approach this text. And there's a question that is being begged to ask, that we're to ponder this morning, and it's this. How can a person be right with God? It's an age-old question. Even Job, back in the Old Testament, like he's like one of the oldest guys to live, right? He lived with the dinosaurs because we hear about Leviathan and all this stuff. Even he was asking this question. So this is a question, how can a person be right with God that has existed for as long as humans have? And perhaps a sub-question for us to keep in mind and to also ask is, can you get to God by being good? So we'll be in Luke chapter 18. I'm going to begin reading for us in verse 9. Luke 18, 9. He, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Now we see in verse 9, this parable is being told to some who trusted in themselves. Perhaps whenever we look at the translation of this word, that these were those who were convinced of their own righteousness, of their own justification. That in their minds, they were convinced that they were right with God. And this self-justification, we're going to see this pattern that it leads to, that after you have been convinced in your own mind, you can be led to be prideful, that you're puffed up with pride. And after you have this pride of yourself, you can begin to compare yourself with other people. We see this all throughout the scriptures with the Pharisees and Sadducees and how they look towards others. And after this comparison, if I am the benchmark, if this is what righteousness looks like, then I have contempt on you. Then it leads to contempt that those Others have fallen short. 
Over the past several months, I've been reading this autobiography. It's about John G. Patton, and he was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands in the 19th century. So he was originally from Europe and was a missionary who went to the New Hebrides, which were islands full of cannibals. Now, as you all know, we've had gospel for Asia last week, and then a couple weeks ago, we had some missionaries from East Africa. But this is my question to you all. Who in here is signing up to go to a mission trip to preach to some cannibals. Any of y'all signing up for that one? Yeah, we had like one and a half people in the first service, so y'all are a little bit behind that number. I guess it's like, I don't know, 150%. Not very many. Why? Well, we don't want to get eaten, right? We love ourselves more than that. We love our families more than that. It's like, I don't want to be someone's dinner. So a quick aside, a quick story. There was a cannibal who invited his friend over to dinner. And the meal is made, the table is set, they begin to dig into the main course, and the guest says, man, your wife sure makes some good stew. And the host, nodding his head in agreement, he wipes his mouth with a napkin, he says, yeah, I agree, but I'll still miss her. (laughs) Sorry, I couldn't resist, but going back on track, we think about us, and this is the thought of going to mission, be a missionary to an island full of cannibals. And perhaps what would lie in our hearts that we want to share with anyone is what business do I have going and being with those savages? And even in this autobiography, they are described as savages, these cannibals, and we're thinking, are they even savable? Can they even be saved? In verse 10, we see that there is this comparison, this contrast, especially in the eyes of man, between the Pharisee and the tax collector. See, in the eyes of man, there is a monumental, massive difference in between both of them. One is this self-described religious man who is right with God, and he does all the right religious things, and everybody looks up to him because he's a religious leader. And on the other hand, there is the IRS guy that's going to cheat you out of your taxes, right? He's this tax collector who is despised among the people, and he is even self-described as a sinner. Let's take a different perspective at this. In the eyes of God and in the perspective of justification, how are these two men different? How is the Pharisee truly different from the tax collector? Perhaps we'll see this, John G. Patton, this missionary who goes to the islands, although he sees horrors, he slowly learns while being on the island that there's actually not so much difference in between myself and these cannibals, these Tana savages. And we look at scripture, James chapter 2 verse 10 says this, for whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. You see that the law given by God, the law through Moses, its standard is perfection. Be holy as the Lord your God is holy. If you've even broken one point, you're just as much of a dirty sinner as everyone else, even the cannibals. Well, that puts us all in the same boat. That makes the landscape look rather different whenever we're looking at one another and ourselves. I remember as a kid going to the scrapyard, dropping off wire and electrical parts to sell, 
And I would always be so interested at looking at the cars lined up in the junkyard that there would this, be this late model Cadillac that actually looks pretty good. It might be missing an engine or something like that, but hey, it's actually mostly a car. It's still pretty much intact. And then there would be a car a couple ones down. You couldn't even tell if it was a Mercedes or a VW bus because it was just half a frame that was left there in a junkyard. And then it really began to revolutionize my thinking to think that all of these cars, no matter in what shape that they are in, are all ready to be condemned. They're all going to meet the same demise to go to the chokey, which is not called the chokey, but to get crushed into like a four foot by four foot cube of metal and to be shipped off, all ready for condemnation. And in light of that, whenever we think by our nature in Adam, we are all sinners. So our destiny, our fate is condemnation because of our sin that separates us from God. That makes the landscape and the playing field a lot more even than often we play it to be. I love this test. It's from another Texas pastor that it's the terrible person test. I know that we might have some guests or first-time visitors, but I'm about to just try to prove to you that you are a terrible person. Like I said, we're glad you're here. We love you. I would go around the room and hug all of you. But here's the thing, we are all terrible people whenever we are reliant upon ourselves. So by show of hands, who in here are liars? Okay, some of y'all with your hands down, you're just proving my points in the negative, not in your favor. How about this? Have you ever been mad at someone for getting the position that you wanted, for getting that prize that you wanted, or whatever happened to them, and it's not fair because you deserved it? Anybody been there, done that, got the t-shirt? I've been there. We're all together on that one. How about this? Have you ever murdered anyone? (laughs) Not very many hands are going to go up. We might have to investigate, but if there's not many hands on that, still listen. Have you ever had, this is a really good one, that imaginary argument with that specific person in your head, and in that argument, you're just literally obliterating that person, right? You're going like scorched earth on him, and you're just going to wipe him off the face of the earth because you've approved him and put them to shame. Anybody ever been there, done that? Okay, so... Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Jesus says this, even if you say raka towards a brother or sister in your heart, which translates to you fool, you have sinned against the Lord. You see, once again, the law doesn't just require external obedience, but it also requires perfect internal obedience. You don't have to kill someone to have sinned against God and to have fallen to fulfill and follow the law. Seems like an impossible challenge, right? To justify ourselves before God. So to give you a little bit of a spoiler, which to be fair, I don't think many of y'all are actually going to be clamoring to read a 19th century autobiography about a missionary. The islands of the New Hebrides end up coming to faith in Jesus in droves that all of their tribes and all these people are responding to the gospel message that these missionaries are doing in their work. And today, praise God, 85% of the New Hebrides islands are believers and followers of Jesus, that they have come to faith in Jesus. Why? Was it because they had a good resume? Was it because they were religious people? No, they were eating people. Like They were leading legs for lunch. And here's the thing. 
the prayer that they prayed, that they saw the condition of their hearts, the condition of their souls, and said, have mercy on me, God. Have mercy. I see who I am, and I can't change it. That God came, and he began a work in them. He began to restore them. He saved them. He justified them. What a beautiful thing. Verses 11 and 12 we see the list, the resume that the Pharisees put together for himself of why he is justified. And this reminds me of a story from one of our church members that he has a good friend who just graduated college as a family friend, kind of like a daughter to him, graduated from Texas Tech and was ready to buy a home in Lubbock. And there's this specific home that's been on the market for about a year, and the realtor's really pressed and really pushing, trying to get her to buy it. And she's like, I'm just unsure about this. I want a second opinion. So he drives down to Lubbock to talk with this friend. And this is how he described it to me. It's like they put lipstick on a pig. Because you look on the outside, there was new siding on this house, and there was new trim, and you walk inside, and they had put new paints of coat, or new paints on the walls, new trim, yet whenever he took a closer look, the electrical system looked like it could start a fire on any given day. The, the foundation was critically and dangerously cracked and flawed, that there were too many issues to count with the plumbing, that there were places that weren't even insulated, that there were infestations of critters. You name it, this house had it. It should have been condemned. And in the same way, Scripture describes those who try to justify themselves, try to clean themselves up. This is the words of Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. They're like whitewashed tombs. They're beautiful on the outside. Yet on the inside, they are full of dead man's bones. They're like cups that have been wiped clean and polished on the outside, yet inside they are still left filthy. I remember one day going down the road with my uncle. It was after we'd been working all day long in the heat, you know, the high plain summers that we have. And we had actually been digging a trench by hand with shovels. And I hadn't had hardly anything to drink all day long, and he, he just worked me ragged. And I would remember I was so ready to get anything to drink. And we hop in his pickup, we're going down the road, and I see that there's this Coke can that's sitting in the middle. Some of y'all already know where I'm headed on this, and you're already squirming in your seat. So without even asking permission, without even asking what, I just grab this Coke can and go to take a big swig. And the next couple of moments are him laughing, trying to keep the pickup on the road while I'm trying to gag and throw up out the window because I just took a good, healthy gulp of his tobacco spit. It was his spit can, and it was downright nasty. I could still imagine the texture as it went down my throat. And in the same way, this nastiness on the inside that just, man, we can't even sit still. There's this grossness and there's this interior reality in us that we can't clean, that we can't get rid of. We can try to dress it up. We can put lipstick on the pig. But here is the thing. We can't do anything about it. There's this condition that there's only one who can justify us and to come in and redeem us. Verse 13, we see the beautiful prayer of the tax collector. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And he's beating his chest with his fist like he is punishing his heart because he has seen the inward reality, the inward condition of who he is. And he says, have mercy. I am sinful. I am unclean. 
in Renovation of the Hearts by Dallas Willard, he tells us this. We all have ruined souls ready for condemnation. You see the ugly actions that we see around the world, that there's murder and there's theft, and there's all the other hosts of ugliness that we experience in our world today. And imagine the human hearts where those actions proceed from. That that human hearts must be even more ruined and ugly because that's where the actions and the thoughts have proceeded from. Lord, help us. And even those who have put lipstick on a pig can't rid themselves. That's been established. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So here's the truth of the gospel. Are you listening? Are you following this morning? We do not and cannot justify ourselves before a holy, righteous God. Only Christ justifies. Only Christ justifies. And that's the offer that he gives to us. Will you turn and see the truth of your condition in your heart? Will you humble yourself before me? And will you accept me by faith? 324, the verse right after 323, and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, and he might be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Don't you hear the pronouns? Don't you see who's acting in the story? It's God who justifies, and it's him who is rewriting our story. Not anything we do, not by us, all him. He delights in you, and he loves you, and he wants you, because that's who he is, because he is a loving father. And out of the overabundance of his love and mercy, he rejoices to bring you in, to come and renovate you from the inside out. Kind of like Chip and Joanna. They're the only ones that can do Magnolia, right? They're the only one that can renovate in the way that they do. And at a much higher degree, only God can save our souls and redeem us. Verse 14, it begins with our bankruptcy, our true assessment of our condition. If we're humbling ourselves, this parable is about humility, if we would humble ourselves before him and admit that we need a hero. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And in that prayer and in that space, he is faithful to lavish his mercy and grace upon us. So this is the question for us, the application. What shall we say then? Well, first of all, I want you to search your heart, to ask yourself, am I more like the Pharisee or am I more like the tax collector? Take an inventory of your heart. For those who have placed their faith in Jesus and trusted in Jesus, this is a reminder that our relationship with God is continually based and grounded in his mercy and grace. That it isn't, okay, God has saved us, God has justified us by his grace and what he has done. Now it's up to you to work hard. It's not, okay, I've been saved, now i got to pull the boots up by the bootstraps and get to work because the ball is in my court. That's not at all the story that we find in Scripture. 
John 1.16 says this, For from his fullness, Jesus' fullness, we all received grace upon grace. That in the Christian life, it isn't grace, then hard work. There's no wonder where so many of us Whenever we believe that it's up to us to be more like Jesus or to live in a way that's pleasing him after he saved us, that we spin our tires in the mud and we're stuck. It's because we trusted in ourselves again. Was that the story of the gospel? Was that how we began? Absolutely not. That it's grace upon grace that we rely upon. That it's the grace that God's going to continually give us to grow something beautiful in us and to lead us up into his mercy. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Even for my sanctification, even for my growth, I pray that prayer daily to say, God, empty me of my filthiness. That without you, I'm a wretch. But with you, God, I can be redeemed and you're growing something in me. But I must be connected to you. And it's a daily process. It's daily manna. I love the illustration of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness and God is sending the manna from heaven. But he says this, don't eat the bread from yesterday. It's going to be infested with worms. It's going to be gross. It's been on the ground all nights long. No, I'm sitting down fresh bread, fresh manna for you to take the light in, for you to be sustained. That it's that daily provision he gives us. In the same way as Christians who have trusted in Jesus, it's daily provision that we stay connected with him. Are you hearing me this morning? It's a daily provision that he provides for us. That we say, God, yes, I'll cooperate. Come in and renovate my heart. I am open to how you're going to work. And there's one thing, there's this stronghold that Satan has on so many of our lives It's this, that, well, I'm not a person who studies the Bible. I'm not a person who reads the scriptures. God, have you seen my daily routine that I get up at this time and go to work and I get home and it's just enough to feed the kids and take care of all the chores around the house? Or God, have you seen all the homework that I have? Have you seen my craziness, busyness schedule? Or God, it's just so much easier to get home in the evening time and to watch something mindless on TV, watch some Netflix, maybe to scroll on Instagram or TikTok, Facebook, whatever it is, God, I just don't study the Bible. I'm just too busy. I have this, I have that. And there's excuses where we buy into the lie that we don't have to be rooted in God and his word and be growing in a relationship with him. And he continually reminds us that if you're open to my work, and that means opening the scriptures and abiding in that relationship, I will create something beautiful in you. I know that you have been suffering. I know that you have been struggling. I know that you long and your prayers seem like they're bouncing off the ceiling because no one hears you, it seems, because I want to grow my relationship with you. God, I'm drowning in the waters of these waves. And God's saying, I'll do the work. I'll come in and renovate you from the inside out. But will you cooperate? Are you going to open up your word? This second graders could understand. Jesus says, little, let the little children come to me. There's so many ways that we can interact with God's truth that there's Bible project videos, and there's so many creative ways that we engage with God and have this relationship with him and learn the scriptures and his truth, yet we're so insistent on our preferences for passivity. We're so insistent that we prefer to be passive, that we completely miss how much God loves us. We completely miss that he is wildly and madly in love with you and wants to lavish grace on you, and he prefers you 
his son proved it. And he just invites us. Open yourself up to me. Spend time daily with me. Receive what you need from me right here. For those who haven't placed their faith in Jesus, salvation is a gift to be received by faith through his grace. Ephesians 2. There's a beautiful illustration. You might have heard of this people group. There is a people group called the Dalits who live in India. And literally they are called the untouchables. From birth, they are unclean. And they say that the caste system has been abolished in India, but there's living proof that the caste system still exists because of how the Dalits are under extreme oppression. They are subjects to constant violence, and no matter what a Dalit does, no matter what education, no matter what merits or even hard work that they might do, they are destined to be despised among all peoples. They are unclean. They are the untouchables. And one of the most heartwarming stories to read about and to look at is whenever someone from beyond this situation, far beyond the situation, comes in to adopt a Dalit boy or girl. That even though they don't have any merit or anything they've done themselves, out of the love of a mother and slash or father, they say, I'll adopt you. I'll give you a new hope. I'll give you a new life. I'll lift you from the ashes that's just a continual cycle. It seems like you're never going to break. I'll call you a son. I'll call you a daughter. And what a beautiful picture this is of the gospel, of all of our story that passed down from generation to generation to generation. We are in bondage and in slavery to sin that we helplessly and hopelessly try to get ourselves out of. And God says, wait, if you will just allow me to have mercy on you out of my great love, if you would just receive and say, have mercy on me, Lord, I'll adopt you. I'll call you a son. I'll call you a daughter because I love you. And that's who I am. And you abide in that love. John 15, that he is a vine and we are the branches. That you would abide and remain in him because he is good. How can a person be right with God? Well, here's the answer. Trust in Jesus and his performance and what he has done alone. His performance is the only one good enough. And man, isn't it liberating to live in that freedom, to live in that grace and to allow him to renovate and transform us and make us up into the people we were created to be. Trust in Jesus, that daily prayer have mercy on me, a sinner. Father, we come before you. God, we're just grateful for your mercy and your grace. And we're so thankful for how your word speaks to us, God. And we just pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts and in our lives, God, that you were speaking to every single one of us. God, that there are promises, there are assurances, and there is mercy and grace available for us and ready for us if we will receive it. Lord, and how liberating, what freedom, what joys there are to be in wild abandon to your mercy. To know that you are the subject of our sentence and you are the focal point of our story because you are the Savior. God, I just pray for those that have not trusted in you, God, if they are with us this morning, that they would truly know and believe that this is the day of salvation, God, that there wouldn't be a moment to waste 
to just come before you and say, have mercy on me, a sinner, and to receive the forgiveness that only comes from you. God, I just pray for the men, women, children, whoever are in here who have trusted in you, Lord, and are seeking to follow you, pursue you, that you just remind them that it's grace upon grace that they have received. God, that you will allow the grace for them to grow up in Christ-likeness, to be like you, and it's all by your power. It's still you doing the work, God, but we would also turn and be willing to cooperate and be willing to open the doors and say, come in, Lord. Do with me as you please. Use me. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the life and the lifeline that he is. Lord, we love you, and we praise you. It's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray all of these things. Amen.